Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is December the 12th, 2019. That's 12-12-19. And I got a just a random cool fact for you. The last full moon of the decade will peak tonight at 12-12 on 12-12. It's just a weird pattern thing that people like me notice. So, um, if you want to see the moon at its peak for the final time in the decade, such clock, your alarm, whatever, and tonight go outside and gaze into the sky. And assuming you're at a place with clear skies, which we will have here in Texas today, you will see a beautiful moon. Regardless of the numeric pattern, I was out last night and I had this on my mind. And I was checking some of my tanks and stuff like that. Um, and the moon was so bright. And the fact that it's going to be a little brighter tonight and will be at its peak of its cycle. 12-12 at 12-12. I just think that's kind of cool and thought I would share that with you guys. Nothing really comes of it, but it's still cool. All right, so what are we going to talk about today? Well, it's a listener calls day. This is for calls to the Think Line. That's 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK, or you can go to the Speak Pipe. I've got calls from both places today. Actually, if, if you've called any time recently and you haven't heard yourself on the air yet, assuming you didn't miss it, and you don't hear yourself today, you might want to make your call again. And I toyed around with the idea of getting rid of the Think Line, and I'm not going to um, because I still get way more calls on the think line and speak pipe. I will say this. The quality of things left on the speak pipe is always better than phone calls. It just is. And I get a lot of broken up. I had three calls today that I didn't use. We said really long pause. Now one, you're going to be like a hole in it. You won't hear the wait, but you'll be able to tell like something's missing. There was two big pauses in it, but it was enough clear enough for what it was to go ahead and use it. That almost, I'm going to say never, I'm going to say almost never happens on the speak pipe. So consider using the speak pipe. How the hell do you use it? What the hell is a speak pipe? That sounds like, I don't know, some weird twisted way to get stoned or something. Let's go to the speak pipe. Now, the speak pipe is just a technology, and all you have to do to use the speak pipe, go to the survivalpodcast.com and go to the contact page, and you'll see a little button there that says Start Recording. Remember, we have a mobile version of the site, so if you're on the mobile version of the site, you might be like, I don't see a thing for contact. There's a little thing with some hatches, and you hit that, and it'll give you your menu options, and you can just choose contact and hit start recording. And then just, you know, you record a message, and it'll come to me, and I'm just going to say that in general, it seems to have less audio issues when people use the speak pipe. All right. So, what have we got calls on? i got a bunch today, and I'm going to do some of them really, really quickly. That way we can kind of, I'm on to like clear out the queue, and I think we have one more Friday show before the shutdown. And uh, so I don't know, or Thursday show before the shutdown, so I don't know if we will do another calls show before 2020. Uh, if you want that to happen, then you need to call. If you call in and there's enough calls next Thursday, I will do another call show instead of doing a random topic. But here's what we've got today. I have got more on sous vide and turkeys for the holidays. Thanksgiving has come and gone. 
Uh, but I had a couple of people with some really strong feelings about why you should consider sous vide your turkey and a resource for how to do it right. Uh, a question on simple gray water systems for your garden. Uh, dealing with mosquitoes and aquaponics and hydroponics. Really, really simple solution to an apparently complex problem. Uh, an interview I did with Joshua Sheets, uh, you may want to check it out. I'm not, this is where I'm talking about the speak pipe versus the phone. I don't know if the guy calling is talking about my first interview with Joshua Sheets a long time ago or my most recent one that was all about keto. He mentions keto, but the call sounds more like it's about the older. So I have links to both of them and I'll give you some thoughts on that and some thoughts on, you know, giving back and as a podcaster, Being good to other podcasters. It'll make sense when we get to it. Um, next, if I was buying a smartphone today for the very first time, what would I get and why? I am not a tech geek when it comes to smartphones. I carry an iPhone. But it's not because I think the iPhone is the best phone out there. I'll explain why I carry an iPhone and why I probably wouldn't select an iPhone if I didn't already have one in 2019. But I'm not going to get really specific on models and makes and everything because I... I don't care that much. I think they're all pretty damn good, honestly. Um, a question on deciding on tree varieties for a specific climate or region, in this case, west of Pittsburgh, uh, which the gentleman says, well, since you're from there, I'm not. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the size and scale of Pennsylvania, and I will try to scale this question and its answer to be more useful to people everywhere rather than just people that live in western Pennsylvania. Um, a question on repurposing IBC cage material. So you know the big metal cage on the outside of an IBC uh, container? Uh, guy wants to do something. I see no reason it won't work. I just don't know that it'll do any good to use the cage material for the idea. Maybe you guys have some other ideas of what can be done with them. Uh, thoughts on loans in, a, in an agricultural business is startup capital and drawing a salary during your startup. And a look at the concept of oath-keeping uh, and my thoughts on an organization that fell from grace. This is a question that comes in from overseas. I'm going to say it sounds like a Scotsman, uh, but it could be somewhere else. I could be wrong. But uh, a question I, I can tell this person doesn't really know what oathkeepers.org was or is uh, and has heard of the concept and is asking a pretty interesting question that I think you know, falls right in line with some crap that's going on in Virginia right now with some potential real headbutting over some potential gun regulations that ain't happened yet. And we'll talk about how all that works out and how I think that both sides on this issue are wrong. And the way that both sides are wrong is they're both also right as to what the military and police would do in a situation where uh, one side feels its constitutional rights are being violated. And the question is always, if it's complex, and this certainly is, would be answered with, well, it depends. There is no blanket answer to this. And anybody thinks there is has oversimplified something that's incredibly complex and really doesn't know what the hell they're talking about, and you probably shouldn't take their advice on it. Anyway, we will get to all that more. Let's start out with a quote of the day. This is by Peter Drucker. And Peter once said, Efficiency is doing things right. Effectiveness is doing the right things. Boy, that's uh, talking about a product productivity quote there. So you can be doing action A absolutely perfectly, incredibly efficiently, but that action may not be the right thing for what you're trying to accomplish in your life. And in some instances, if you think about it that way, 
if you're really efficient at doing the wrong thing, you, well, you know, like let's say you ran a business and you got really efficient at selling your product for less money than you should be so that you end up losing money, you're going to be really efficient at going out of business. But let's say you weren't incredibly efficient at the way you sold your product, but you were reasonably efficient, but you were selling it for the right price to the right people and doing the right follow-up marketing and being effective. Your business will probably succeed in spite of the fact that it could be better. And there's so many places in life like this. You can be really efficient at watering your garden. Totally different subject. Really efficient at it. But if you're watering it the wrong way, i.e. giving it too much water, your efficiency will more quickly you know, kill your plants. You can be really efficient at the way you eat your breakfast. But if you're eating food that's going to give you type 2 diabetes, you're just going to get type 2 diabetes faster. This, this quote is brilliant because it affects all things in your life. Efficient is only as useful as how effective the thing that you're talking about is. And I wanted to say before I get into the first call today, which is actually two calls back-to-back, -back, and I'll explain why in a second, um, why I started doing the quote of the day and why I like it so much. I find that if we can get off on the right foot in any endeavor, the, the endeavor itself seems to go better. And if we can get our mind open at the beginning of one of these episodes, especially an episode like today or like the one I did yesterday with Nicole, we call it the ramp, circle of random crap, when there's multiple topics, a lot of times I think people are like, well, I don't really give a damn about this or that. But if we get off on the right foot together in these episodes, as we go through them, a lot of times I think you'll find, you know, let's say I start talking about dealing with mosquitoes in an aquaponics or hydroponics system. And you have no interest in growing aquaponics or hydroponics, or you live somewhere you don't really have a mosquito problem. Or for one reason or another, you just feel like, well, that topic doesn't matter to me. And when you hear like a really, really simple solution to it, even if you never implement that solution, what you then start saying to yourself is self, in this thing that I do give a shit about, what is my simple solution? Right? And I think that starting out with a quote of the day that causes us to pause and think, like yesterday's quote of the day by Will Rogers, be thankful you're not getting all the government you're paying for. But that makes you think differently. I mean, you have to really like pause for a second and go, whoa, wait a minute. If I was getting all the government I was paying for, all the crap that I don't like about government and all the things government does I don't want them to do, they would be doing more of that more efficiently. So maybe it is good that they're inefficient in many ways. Maybe the fact that they're inefficient in many things is a great way to make a case that they should be doing less in the first place. But see, that takes the whole dynamic and it makes you think differently about the same subject where you were already sure, hey, it would be better if those clowns did a better job. Better job at what? Like when people tell me, like, well, I moved to this neighborhood over that neighborhood because they have better schools. They get really mad when I say, well, what are they better at? Well, they have better test scores. But what are they better at? Teaching your kids to get a higher test score? Well, don't you think your kid would probably get the same test score no matter what school they went to? So what are they better at? Indoctrination? You know? Is that what they're better at? At indoctrinating? Like, what are they better at? And even if you still believe at the end of that discussion that you made the right decision and school is, you know, public schools are good, government schools are good, that's fine. But think about it. Think about it differently. That's what I try to do with these quotes is to get you to think about things a little differently. And instead of thinking about efficiency, 
Start thinking about effectiveness. Because the beauty of effectiveness, when we start to think about it, is it requires that we know where we're going. You can be incredibly efficient with no idea of what you actually want. You have this task in front of you. I just want to be able to do it quickly. But where are you trying to go to? Where are you trying to get to? You can drive your car in a manner that's the most efficient for gas mileage. Being easier on the accelerator, etc. Timing lights. But what if you don't know where the hell you're going? You're still burning wasted gas because you're not going anywhere. Doesn't that make you start to question some things in your life, especially as we approach the end of another year and the end of a decade? We're going into the 20s. And I keep saying this, people don't understand. Like This actually is someone who likes things to, to, to make sense, to, to be some sort of level of uniformity, uh, some level of scalability. I like things to, to have pattern. Living through the aughts and the teens was stupid. I grew up in the 70s and the 80s. And then we had the 90s, right? So I, I'm used to having like a decade that sounds like it makes sense. We're moving into the 20s. See, I'm, I'm a kid from the 70s and 80s, so I'm like, 20s? That's like flappers and prohibition and mobsters. And hey, maybe we should bring some of that stuff back in the, the new roaring 20s. Who knows? Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and jump on into it. I got two calls here on Sue being a turkey. Since they're so similar and since my response is going to be really, really brief, I'm just going to play them back to back for you, and then I'll come back and we'll, we'll dig into some other topics as well. Hey, Jack, this is Jeff in Olympia. just wanted to make a quick comment about sous viding a turkey. The best video on how to do it is made by a company called Chef Steps. Bottom line up front, what they do is the night before Thanksgiving, they first cook the dark meat at a higher temperature. I believe it's about 165 degrees. And then the following morning, they lower the temperature to about 135 degrees, and you add in the white meat. You carve the bird up. You keep uh, all the skin on the bird, and then at the very end of it, you go ahead and crisp up the skin in a pan before uh, plating it and serving it. Enjoy the show. Keep up the great work. Thanks. Hey, Jack, this is Dylan, Angus Bangus on the forum and the blog. Just calling about your comments recently about Thanksgiving reducing stress, and you've also talked about Susie and a turkey and not doing it for the first time for Thanksgiving. I would just say that it's one of the easiest ways to reduce stress on the whole family when you're cooking for Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever you're doing over the holidays. Get one of these sous vide cookers. Try it out one time. Do it on a parted out turkey. Do it on a beef tenderloin. Do it on whatever you want to do it on. But it'll be amazing. Your family will love it. You can't hardly screw it up. And it'll totally take the stress out of the biggest piece of the stress of a meal. Anyway, good luck to everybody with the holiday cooking that's coming up. Take it easy. So, so just for clarity, um, I'm a huge fan of sous vide cooking. I, I am going to make sous vide steaks tonight. I have been, up till now, underwhelmed at any and all poultry I have done in sous vide, except for duck breast, which I really need to get some more of those damn things from D'Artagnan and do a cooking video with that, because it was, honest to God, the best thing I've ever made in my life. You'll have to wait for that, though. I, I made some moulard duck breast about two weeks ago. That I'll tell you what, if you're going to do sous vide duck breast, hatch cross your skin, like to crisp up the skin, and pre-sear the skin, then put it in your bag, then do your sous vide, then take it out and do a second sear. Oh, my God. But that is the only poultry. I've, I've done chicken. I've done chicken wings. 
Um, I've been underwhelmed. Now, maybe I haven't just done it long enough. It seems like poultry needs a much longer period of time, and I will give it another shot. I do have a link to the video mentioned, and uh, Chef Steps makes the Jewel, and Anova makes the Anova. And um, I owned a Jewel for about a year. I really liked it. It worked really well, but it died. And it died, like, right after the warranty wore out. It just it didn't work no more. And I don't like stuff that just dies. Uh, so I gave the Anova a shot, and it has I've had zero problems with the Anova now, and I've had it almost two years. So, I, you know, any individual electronic device can fail, but, you know, based on my experience, I recommend the Anova over the Jewel. But I agree with the first caller. When it comes to recipes and procedures, Jewel is awesome. And you can get their app and get all the recipes and all that stuff without using their device. So I don't really mean to crap on their device, and if you have one, definitely don't get rid of it. But if you were asking me today, which one would you buy, I'd buy the Innova because one died on me and one didn't. Anyway, um, I definitely agree with when you're cooking turkey that you're better off parting a turkey out. Even if you do the best job you can, classic roasting a turkey in the oven, your, your white meat will be drier than you would prefer. My only caution when it came to sous vide and something like a Thanksgiving or a Christmas dinner is don't let it be the first one. Don't let it be the first one. Because, you know, even if you're making steaks, I mean, you literally can go, if you have more steaks, go into a freezer, pull them out, get them defrosted, and, and cook a second round and fix your screw-up. Turkeys don't work that way. So I would just say, try it, but perfect it before you're having a giant meal for, you know, mom-in-law, dad-in-law, your parents, their parents, uh, cousins, and all that. And you got, like, all these people coming, and you're already stressed about it. Um, and I'm going to give it a shot myself. Uh, my view, though, and the reason I put this on is, like, yeah, Thanksgiving's gone, but Christmas is another turkey holiday for a lot of people. Man... I got to tell you, a big-ass whole filet mignon, sous vide, and then cut thick and seared off, and then you just sear longer for the people that want theirs ruined, that's a Christmas dinner to me. Either that or a, a you know prime rib or something like that. I uh, One giant turkey day a year is enough for me. We're gonna be we're gonna be having red meat in the Spearco household, um, and then like just another holiday idea for like downtime and all. If there's something you really really like, that's kind of like spoiling yourself, especially like if you and your spouse like it or something like that. Instead of doing it on the day, do it like the day before or the day after and make it um, a tradition. Uh, what my wife and I really love snow crab legs. So like this year Thanksgiving, we actually did Thanksgiving Friday. Because of family conflicts and stuff like that. It was just easier for everybody. So we did Thanksgiving Friday. So Thanksgiving Day, we had like friggin' six pounds of snow crab leg. Dipped in bar garlic and butter and all. Oh, that beats turkey any day. So I'm not saying to do snow crabs. I'm saying like, do consider finding something that's like spoiling you and your spouse or you and your spouse and your kids. And, and make it apart from this kind of big formalized thing. You know, like, you know. Slamming down crab legs with butter going down your arm, but pretty good day. Anyway, let's uh, let's take another one. This one on um, a simple gray water system for your garden. 
Hey, this is Kenny. My new, or I'm a new listener. My question is, what is your opinion on having your kitchen sink drain directly to a bucket buried in your garden so all your water from dishes and everything in your sink goes to water your garden instead of just having that go down the drain? I'm using natural soap, and I have the bucket filled with gravel so the water filters to the gravel then into the garden. Uh, let me know your opinion. Um, I just signed up for your TSC membership. Uh, I like the 30 bucks a year. Definitely uh, enjoying it. I uh, started listening to your podcast from the beginning, episode one. Big fan. Keep it up. Thanks. In general, I see no problem with this at all. And I think it is a fantastic thing. And if the way your home and your plumbing and your garden and your grade of your land and all of that is set up that it makes this easy to do. It's kind of the thing that everybody should at least consider doing. I have only one concern here. There's times where I pick up my wife and I refer to her as Dory. And if you if you can think about the kids movie Nemo, the cartoon with the fish, Dory is easily distracted. Like, look, something shiny, where? And then he takes off and leaves her and she's distracted. And my wife does do that. I'm a bigger Dory than my wife is. I get distracted. And I am the guy that will stick a pot in the in the sink and turn the water on for it to fill up and wander off, yell at somebody on TV, go in my office to check my email for just one second, and then be sitting here and going, I know I forgot something. Okay? <laughs> That's me. I'll do that crap all day long. And I'll do it with a garden hose and go outside and the ducks are having a mud party because the, the hose ran for 15 minutes. So I guess my only concern would be if you're the kind of person that might walk away while your water's running, you might over-saturate what you're capable of dealing with. I guess my other thing would be it is most likely the case that this bucket full of rocks will probably get gummed up and not let water infiltration infiltrate at some point. So you might want to think about the fact that at some point you're probably going to have to pull the bucket out or pull the rocks out of the bucket and, and redo things. Um, and, and it might not even be a big deal to do. But that would be – and I guess my only other thing would be, so you have a bucket and all your sink water goes into this one spot of your garden. Well, maybe – I'm not saying you should, but maybe if depending on the size of your garden, you might have two or three buckets and some valves and run it one week this place, one week that place, one week the next, or even daily, like swap, swap your valves whenever, you know. That'll give time for some of the bacteria and stuff to eat out all of the goopy gook that's in each bucket, and it'd better disperse your water. You might even be able to figure out how with, you know, some, some you know, splitters or whatever, uh, to, to disp disperse it to two or three buckets rather than one bucket. I mean, just like all the time. So that it you know kind of hits a point. And the only thing is it's a little harder to balance stuff like that because you don't have any pressure. You're just kind of on a, a downward grade flow and how much you have. So it might just be easier to have like you know a manifold is two or three uh, valves and you just you know each week you know put it on your schedule when you walk around Sunday to just change the valves, open number one and close number two like that. That's just a thought. I have no concerns though um, at all. If you were doing like all your bathtub water and stuff like that. Um, you can get into some issues with too much for the system to deal with it. But your kitchen sink should be fine.
Hey, Jack, this is Greg down in Round Rock. Um, got a question on how to control mosquitoes with hydroponics. Um, had a little cracked key type commercial system and have problems with mosquitoes uh, in the summer down here um, outside of Austin. Uh, read Dr. Kratke's, uh PDF that you have online, and it addresses it a little bit. Wanted to know what your experience was. Thanks. So mosquitoes will breed anywhere that they can in water. And, you know, even in my aquaponic systems running ebb and flow beds, they don't really do very well in ebb and flow bed because they get sucked. Uh, I did have one guy tell me that they were breeding in his bell siphon. I'm like, you must have a pretty weak bell siphon because just, you know, and they ended up in the fish tank and then the fish would eat them. So it was never really a problem there. But all of a sudden I realized in my solid separator, um, you know, if they lost the focus of what they were doing, they ended up in a, you know, a, a dirty water pump and ground up. But they were breeding in there. And in my wicking beds, especially my static wicking beds, now you got a downspout and you fill it up with water and you got a you know a place where you you set the level and that's where the water comes out and they would go in those little pipes and they would breed in there. So what to do? BT, that means Bacillus thungosus, is a natural occurring bacterium. It is harmless to people. It is harmless to your pets. It's harmless to your fish if you are using it in a fish system. But it is deadly to mosquitoes. It's like the mosquito bubonic plague. And BT has kind of got a bad rap because we hear the terms like BT corn. And BT corn has come to mean GMO corn of all different shades and stripes. But when it started out, what it was is that uh, the genetic modifications were bred so that the corn naturally produced BT. So then it got kind of linked in with being a chemical and linked in with being a GMO thing and it must be evil because Monsanto did it and Bacillus thungosus again is a naturally occurring bacterium and it not only kills mosquitoes, it kills things like corn earworms which is why they would do that in the first place and it's been used in organic production forever and a day and generally what's, what's done with it is it's made into a spray and it's sprayed on corn right about the time the corn starts to tassel. And that way when the corn earworms moths show up and start laying eggs and the little earworms start to eat and all they get sick and they die really, really fast. So it's not a bad thing. And it is, again, naturally occurring, just generally not in enough volume to kill mosquitoes. Well, they make it in these little dunks. They look like little biscuits. And if you have like ponds or something, then I would recommend that you use that. With a, a hydroponic system, you may be dealing with fairly small amounts of actual water, which mosquitoes love. I mean, I'm going to tell you right now, a mosquito would rather lay its eggs in a hoof print in a cattle field, in dank, skanky, nasty water. It would rather put its babies in there than it would in a nice, beautiful, flowing stream where all kinds of things want to eat it and the water's not slow enough for the little thing to just hang out until it's ready to you know, come out as a mosquito. So a Kratky still water system or a static wicking bed are things that mosquitoes will love. Well, the thing is, again, you have those biscuit-looking ones and you know you maybe need an eighth or a tenth of one of those. And break you can break them in half pretty easy. Quarters even pretty easy. Smaller than that, they get all crumbly and it's hard to deal with and you're paying too much for them. They make what they call mosquito bits. And it kind of looks like fish food. And it comes in a jar. And I have a link in the show notes. That's what I recommend. Because with an aquaponics or a hydroponics system, you just kind of, eh, 
What I do with my, my wicking beds in the summer, once I start noticing mosquito activity around them, I take a pinch and I put it down each tube. And I do that about once a week. And no mosquitoes. Really, really simple. So I would recommend BT, whether they're dunks or granules or whatever. And if you want to see what I'm talking about, if you're not sure, just go to the show notes today and click on that link. And you just won't have the issue. And it's not going to make you sick. It's not going to hurt your growth rate of your plants. It's if you are using it, unlike this gentleman in a, you know, he's in a hydro system. If you're in an aquaponic system, it's not going to hurt your fish. My only concern with the little biddly bits, if you throw them in a fish tank, your fish might try to eat them, and it might cause them problems from a, like an obstruction standpoint if they actually manage to eat one, because it looks a lot like little fish pellets. So if you're using them in a fish tank, I would go with the dunks. Or you could do something like get yourself a small mesh bag and put your bits in there, tie that up and hang it in there like a tea bag. Um, basically, you've got a bacterium that's going to start propagating itself. It's inert on that thing, and it's going it's to come to life. And it's going to go infect and kill mosquitoes. And it is incredibly effective. One year, we had so much rain, I actually got mosquitoes and swales. That's something that, I've, that people always say, what do you do about mosquitoes and your swales? You don't do anything because they infiltrate, don't hold water. But when you get 28 days of rain in 34 days, then they do tend to hold water. And I had one of my swales, it was massively full of mosquitoes. And it's, you know, 10,000 gallons of water. So I threw like eight of those dunks. Like I just walked along every so many feet and chunked one in. The next day. It was like massive mosquito wiggler death. It was like a black cloud of mosquito wiggler death. I'm like, like, look at all the high potassium fertilizer that just went into my system. That's, that's, that's how effective they are. So there you go. Let's take another one. This is one. There's going to be like a skipping point in it where you're going to go, what was he saying? It was blank. So I just took the blank spaces out. Hey, Jack. It's Glenn phone in from Ontario, Canada. Just listen to your finance and interruption what you do, what you're all about, and so full of information, I would suggest when you go into your Christmas break or your TSP Rewind session, you make an exception and throw that in for people to mull over over the Christmas holidays because there's so many launch-off points on that particular episode that you did that interview with Joshua Sheets that it would be very worthwhile for your people to consider through the Christmas break what projects they want to do everywhere from keto all the way down to uh, everything else you spoke about. Keep up the great work. Have a great day. Take care. So a, a couple things. One, you kind of talked about all these jumping off points in the interview. And, and the most recent interview where I did talk about keto, and the first one I really didn't, uh, we were pretty focused on keto. On the original one, it was a lot about the entire philosophy of TSP and Modern Survival. So I got links to both of those episodes in the show notes today. I will not be running them during uh, the rewind period, as rewinds in my feed anyway. And I wanted to say a few words about why. So I didn't get where I am on my own. I really didn't. And most of this show was spread because listeners told other people who listened. It was a word-of-mouth growth. But a lot of other people with podcasts, radio shows, blogs, etc., helped me over the years. I've been syndicated on you know, really big sites like LouRockwell.com. I've been on you know, radio shows with people that are, you know, they have one little AM station they're on, and they've asked me to be on there. And I've, I've tried to help those people, and I've, I've been helped by those people. And so when I give somebody an interview instead of have somebody on for an interview, to me, 
that content is their content. And even though I think many of them might be okay with it, if I were to, you know, grab it, download it, and then run it in my feed, um, I, I kind of feel like if, if you want to hear me on Joshua's show, you should go to Joshua's feed and, and listen to it so that he gets exposed to my audience. And that we kind of, you know, work together that way and help each other. So the reason I'm bringing this up is I kind of feel bad. I was on Josh's show and I was on another person's show that I'll, I'm going to like give Joshua 100% mind share today and make this other one right tomorrow and tell you about the other one. Um, and I was on both of those like right before the workshop when I'm doing a million things. I'm literally a one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest for like three to four weeks coming up to the workshop. And I, I don't know why I agreed to do those two interviews, like one each week, two weeks before the interview or two before the workshop, but I did. And then I did the thing that I, I always hate myself if I do, and that is I didn't promote those things to my audience. I didn't go out like to Facebook and Twitter and say, hey, I was on this show and I... I know when people are trying to build up their audience that that kind of thing is really helpful. So I will make sure that, number one, there's links to both of these interviews for you if you want to listen to them in the show notes today. Number two, the most recent one on keto, I'll make sure that I share that uh, on social media today as well. And I apologize to Josh for not doing that earlier. And again, I have somebody else I did that for that we'll talk about tomorrow. That way each of them gets 100% mind share. And it's just it's important to me that when I go out and and give somebody an interview, that they get the most of it. And that means exposure to you guys. And that then if you want that, if you want to hear me in that way, that you go there. Because that's how, you know, the rising tide actually does float all boats when we, we think that way. So anyway, for the rewind period, I am thinking about doing kind of Mostly like permaculture topics, like maybe some of the old Jeff Lott interviews and things like that. I'd love to hear from you what you guys want to hear in the, the Rewind uh, episodes between Christmas and New Year's. Uh, I, I really would love those suggestions because I'll pretty much do anything you want, but I won't take somebody else's content as my own. I just, and I don't, I know you're not thinking that way. I, I really appreciate the suggestion and thank you for making it because it let me correct this mistake. And I will maybe put out an email during that time, hey, since I'm not available today, go over here. I think that's really the better way to do it and have consideration for people that have helped me because Josh has a pretty good-sized show, and being on his show has brought me listeners. So when I go on his show and I get listeners, I feel like I should also kind of reciprocate. It's just really important to me. Anyway, um, with that, I... Forgot to mention something I wanted to in the last segment on mosquitoes and crack aquaponics. Somebody posted today on the blog a video of a presentation by Dr. Kratke on his method of aquaponics or hydroponics. And so I'll put that in the show notes for you guys today as well. It's about 20 minutes long. It's, it's, it's really uh, informative. It clears some things up as well and gives you a lot of different options with the Kratke method of hydroponics. All right, next up, we got a question on smartphones. Question for Jack. Uh, this is John from Georgia. I'm finally jumping on the smartphone bandwagon. I know you resisted for a while getting a uh, smartphone. You finally got one. And uh, I was wanting to know what you think uh, about uh, suggestions when it comes to iPhones, which is the best for the minimum cost. Uh, I'm just using this for just getting around, uh, functioning on the web, not really downloading a lot of stuff. What do you suggest? Uh, which one do I look at? 
and memory capacity. Thank you. Love you, show, man. So let's start off with the whole resisted for a while. I don't really know where that comes from. I think I got my first iPhone in 2009, um, which is why I still have one today, and we'll get to that in a second. But I resisted cell phones for a long time, but now we're going way back. You know, back in like the, the, the mid 90s when I would be walking around a mall and they, like, there's always a person out in front of Radio Shack going, can I tell you about our cell phones? Go away. Get away from me. Um, once I got a phone, moving to a smartphone didn't take that long. I carried a Blackberry up until about 2009 because we had standardized on them at my company. Because they were, like the Blackberry was, before the iPhone, it was the email tool. That's what it was. It worked with our systems and it was just, It was just perfect for, I'm giving this guy a phone. I don't really care if he can get on Facebook. I care that he can answer his email at 3 o'clock in the morning if I need him to. And so that's why we were on BlackBerry. It wasn't anything against smartphones. Um, and everybody was using BlackBerry at the time. Uh, when I got an iPhone, it opened up a whole new world of, of opportunity as far as what you could do with a phone. And I got really into apps. And I actually use quite a few apps that cost money. So I'm at a point now that, you know, I would have to, if I got a new type of smartphone, I got a, you know, Android device, I would have to go rebuy all those apps. And eh, I'm happy with my carrier, which is AT&T. I can usually get a pretty good deal uh, on time to upgrade. I usually buy about one generation below the most current one. In this case, I did buy the most current iPhone when I, when I upgraded because, well, it just worked out to where it made sense to do so. I also, when I buy a phone, I write off 100% of that as an expense against my business. And there would be no way that if I ever had to stand an audit that anybody could ever say that I don't use my phone for my business, you know, almost 100%. Because I don't really like to talk to people very much anyway on the phone. So I use my phone almost exclusively for my business. And I do all my video work with it. And I really like the quality of video that I get out of the iPhone. If I did not own a smartphone and I was going to buy a smartphone today, I would look to like Samsung Galaxy. I'd look to some Android device. And, and the, the reason is simplistic. All the people that are fans of those devices point out that like, well, all the things that you're happy about getting with your iPhone this year, we got that two years ago with our phones. You're just two, three years behind us all the time and have been for 10 years. And they're right. And they're right. And in, in general, I think you get more bang for less buck with an Android device. And I think in some ways they have more flexibility and, 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 and more capability in, in some ways as well. So I would go with an Android-based phone. Exactly what? I don't know. I don't know. And I, 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 like when I decide to buy a new phone, I'm like, well, what's the latest and greatest? You know, how much memory does it have? Okay, yeah, I think it's worth an extra 200 bucks for this one over that one or not. I don't sit there and read reviews for 20 days or something like that. And I'm, I'm a tech geek in some ways, but I'm not to that level in that world. In the end, it's a phone. It lets me communicate on social media. It takes pictures. It does video. Um, and if I really am in a pinch, I can check my email on it. I do not even routinely do email on my phone anymore. I have enough work and enough of my business into my life. Um, my phone is set up so that I can check my email with it. But the way I set my desktop machine up is once my mail is pulled, it's off my server and it's gone. It's deleted. 
So the only way I would be using my phone to check mail would be if I had shut down my desktop so it's not pulling mail every 15 minutes anymore. And then I would be able to, so if I travel or whatever, I'll use it for that. Or if I need to send a quick email, I might do that. But I rely mostly on text. You know, if it wasn't for the camera and all the apps, I'd have no use for a phone at all. I mean, really, I, I guess if somebody needs to call me. Um, so I'm not your phone guy. And we don't have somebody like that's really like a phone person on the expert council. I don't think it's a deep enough topic to do that. So there's my advice. I would go into the world of Android, Samsung Galaxy, stuff like that, if I was buying my first one today, definitely. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Chris. I'm actually relocating uh, just west of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, to a little town called Oakdale, Pennsylvania. I'm sure you being from that area, you're familiar with it pretty well. Anyway, um, I'm relocating from uh, from the south and living in the north for the first time. I'm looking at planting a lot of fruit trees at the place I'm building up there. I've got about a quarter acre behind the house. I've got lots of sun exposure. I've got about a 6% grade uh, in the uh, backyard, but I think I can mitigate that with maybe some soil systems put in. I'm looking at planting around somewhere around 100 fruit trees over a period of about two to three years. And uh, I've looked up quite a few things that I can plant, but mostly I just want to plant things that will do well there um, and uh, and try some edgy things as time moves on. But anyway, since you're from there, I'm kind of curious if you know of certain uh, cultivars of plants that you like or certain types of plants that you like. Uh, that are unique to that area. For example, uh, Mayhaws are, you know, unique to the swamps of Louisiana. Maybe there's something like that up there in uh, Pennsylvania. Anyway, just kind of curious to hear your thoughts. Um, can't think of what else you would need to know to answer this question. Um, the soils, I guess it's fair. I don't know much about it. Again, I got lots of southern skies, so I should have a problem there. And uh, that's really it. Uh, I plan on doing drip irrigation with the location. And... But that's all I got. Anyway, here, here's your thoughts. Thanks. So let's let's start out with some things. Number one, um, trees don't need the greatest fertility to grow well, and the place you live has enough that trees are going to do well. Number two, six percent grade is not that steep. Uh, you really don't need to do terracing or anything like that, and it may or may not make sense for you to put swales in. It probably doesn't. And if you don't know exactly why you're putting swales in, in most situations don't. But in the situation you're giving me, which is I want to plant a lot of trees in a climate where trees do well with plenty of existing rainfall with reasonable soils, you probably shouldn't. You better, and I'm not saying it doesn't make sense. I'm saying if you don't know exactly why, exactly where, exactly how, and exactly what it's going to get you, just plant your trees. A hundred on a quarter acre? You can do it if that's what you really want to do, but that's a lot of trees. You are going to have to do extensive management with pruning to maintain that many trees on a quarter acre. So just think about, do you really want to do that, or do you want to let trees get more up in full size? As far as familiarity with the area, um, I am not from the Pittsburgh area. I'm from central to eastern central Pennsylvania. I'm from a place called Schuylkill County, uh, Pottsville. Uh, which is uh, known for yingling beer, uh, maybe me, and nothing else. right? I mean, and I'm not being egotistical. I'm just saying that that's how little that the place is known. If it wasn't for yingling, then, you know, this audience might know Pottsville from me and, and nothing else. Uh, it's a different climate. 
Uh, people, we talk about how big uh, Texas is sometimes, people not understanding that. And it's true. Like, if, if you took Texas and you took the, the southern tip of Texas and put it on the northern tip of Texas, the top of the panhandle would then touch Canada. That, that's how big Texas is. Pennsylvania isn't that big, but it's a big state. And it is a significantly different biome on the west versus east side of the, 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 um, the I'm sorry, the, the uh, Susquehanna River, which runs right through Harrisburg, kind of dead center in the state. And when you, when you go across that river and you go to western PA, it's, it's just bigger country. It's a little bit different soil types. And all. It's, it's in some ways similar, but I, I would just say that western PA is a lot more like Ohio than it is like New Jersey. And eastern PA is a lot more like New Jersey from soils and climate types than it is like western Pennsylvania. Just so I don't have any real, real spot on knowledge there. I will tell you that whole northeast, um, you know, your wild trees that are fruit producers that do really well are like black cherry, choke cherry, uh, persimmon, right? So, like, obviously, like, you're on the right track. You say, I want to plant what grows well here. As far as edgy, the only thing edgy in Pennsylvania is going to be edgy because of of the, the, the winter. It's like trying to do citrus or something. And my advice is just don't. I don't care if Seth Holzer grew a, a, a freaking lemon in, in the Alps. You're not Seth Holzer, neither am I. And it's a stunt. Right? I, I still don't think Paul Wheaton has successfully grown his uh, lemon tree in, in Montana. And he's willing to go nuts to do it. So I, I, uh, I, I just advise you to stick to what does well. Apples, pears, northern hardy stone fruits. Um, if you want to go with a big tree... Uh, pecan walnut, so your northern hardy pecans, walnuts, chestnuts, those are all things you can do. But, I mean, I would really try to zone in on different varieties of apples and pears. Those those are going to be your best. The best thing you can do, no matter where you are, when it comes to this point of what do I plant when it comes to especially perennials, find out what people grow commercially near you and grow that. Because there's a reason they're doing what they're doing commercially, because it grows well there. You can learn a lot sometimes from people who are professionals at what they do. Uh, cherries, like it's probably one of the, the greatest things that you can do in Pennsylvania. I remember my, my neighbor had a cherry tree that you barely could tell it was a cherry tree. The damn thing was so big, you, know, you didn't know it was a cherry tree until the cherry started falling out of it. And apparently it got planted by like somebody put a pit in the ground and it grew. So I, that's what I would, northern for your area, northern, hardy, variety, stone fruits, pears, and apples. Those are your three big, as far as individual cultivars, I mean, get a catalog, read up on the stuff, and plant what you like. And, of course, when you're doing things like apples, make sure that you have blossoms that are timed so that you get good cross-pollination. I would say anybody that plants more than a few apple trees should plant at least a couple um, crab apples that have different flowering times to improve your pollination. And then really think about how many trees you really want to plant. Um, it's a lot of money to put 100 fruit trees in. Um, quarter acre, 20 to 50 trees is still a lot of trees. You can let them get a little bit bigger, a little bit less management. Maybe it makes more sense. Or maybe you want a full-on high-intensity um, food forest, like urban food forest. Well, if you want to do that, go ahead. But you're still going to be in that realm. And then you got to start thinking as well about your herbaceous layer, right, um, and your shrub layer. Like those two are things you need to be thinking about as well. 
I would say the best book for you to get for ideas of what to do in your climate, because um, it was this is just a, a bit more northern, a little bit more uh, winter harsh climate than you uh, up in New England. There's a book called Paradise Lot, like Paradise Lost, but it's called Paradise Lot. Um, for some reason, the name of the two authors is escaping me right now, but um, one is uh, Eric Tossenmeyer, who was um, Dave Jackie's co-author in Edible Forest Gardens. And Eric Tossenmeyer, in my opinion, deserves a hell of a lot more credit for what he did with Dave Jackie than Dave does, but Dave was the lead author on the book and the first name, so he, he's only got more known for it. But Dave would tell you himself that the bulk of the work was Eric's. And Eric is a phenomenal guy. And then Jonathan something is his, his buddy. And what they did is they bought, we, we used to call them half doubles. It's a duplex. I don't know where that came from. We used to call them a half a double uh, in, in the Coal Ridge of Pennsylvania where I'm from. And so you got a duplex. Well, they bought the whole thing, both sides of it. And it needed a lot of work. So they opened up the backyard. So the backyard, relatively small, was much bigger now because it was for both units. And their plan was they were going to live in one while they fixed it up and then figure out what to do, maybe rent the other one or whatever. And they got along so well that eventually when they both found women that they wanted to marry, they each have half of this thing now. And they kind of, at least at the time the book was written, I don't, you know, people's lives change. But they were living as next door neighbors with a shared backyard. And they talk about all kinds of different plants and stuff uh, and how they set up that backyard. We talk about a quarter acre, it's relatively small, and that might give you a lot more of the philosophy because that's going to be a lot more important. Your layout, your planning, how you plant, like berries and stuff like that. Like, you're in a, I'm envious because what you can do with raspberries there alone is huge. Raspberries and honeyberries and stuff like that. So put a lot more thought into it, that because if you want to go high intensity, it's easier to manage shrubs than it is to manage trees, if that makes sense. And Meha, yeah, I wouldn't grow that where you are. I just wouldn't. Anyway, uh, with that, let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Bryce in Florida. I have an interesting question. Would IBC cages work for quail pens? The IBC cages that go around the big water containers that are like 300 to 500 gallons? Details. I have access to three IBC cages, the plastics were no good because of what was stored in them, but the cages are fine. The cages measure 39 inches wide, 47 inches deep, and 41, 41 inches tall, 45 inches with a little bottom thing they have on them, the little bottom layer, but you can remove that. I was thinking of using chicken wire or something like that as quail cages and put them on my side yard which is 57.5 inches wide and 36.5 feet long. Just had a quick thought about that. Thanks, Jack, for what you do. Keep up good work. You, you can do this. There is, there is no reason you can't, and I would say if you have three of them, um, get yourself an angle grinder and cut them or use a sawzall and cut them. Uh, make sure you... Um, sand off the, 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 the cut part because those things get really sharp when you cut them and you can make six and they'll be about 20 inches high and people say if you make well cages uh, more than 11 inches high they'll fly into them and break their neck shut up no they won't we already did it it doesn't happen it's not a thing I don't know where that came from but it's not a thing it's not a thing it's not a thing it is not a effing thing um, 
I had them in a 50-foot-long, 9-foot ceiling aviary, and I watched them fly from one end to the other, and they would, they, they, they are not good at figuring out, hey, there's a wall there, and like, boom, and just fall to the ground, and then, you know, walk off and, and be fine. So that's not a concern. What is the concern? Outside equals raccoons. If you're using chicken wire, it's probably the case that the holes are big enough that the raccoons can reach in and pull the heads off your quail. And if you have raccoons around, and most likely you do, they will totally do that. So that means that you're going to need to use uh, some sort of a wire that has it's small enough that it's at least less likely that that's going to happen to protect them from cats and from raccoons, because cats will reach in and grab them as well. Uh, and if they can reach in, they will. So the, probably the best material to make quail cages with is the welded wire uh, grid type cage material. And then you use that on the bottom as well so the poop falls through and you have some kind of poop collection device. And that's all wonderful. And there is no reason in the world that you can't go get some welded wire caging and, you know, however you want to, use these as frames and attach them and all that. But the thing is you probably don't need to do that if you're going to use welded wire caging. Like, you know, a, a set of, like, miniature hog wing priors and some hog ring, and then you just attach all those panels at the size you want your cages together, and it's rigid enough that you don't really need the reinforcement of the IBC frame. So it in that it won't work, and maybe it would make... Maybe in your design you can find some way to really use that framing to to your advantage. But it may be the case that you're just using it to just use it. If, because if you want quail caging, welded wire caging put together with hog rings is... It, it's what everybody does. Go, again, going to chicken wire, my concern is predators. And you definitely don't want to use chicken wire for your bottoms. You, the, 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 the holes in the bottom need to be small enough that your quail don't have their feet coming through. And the best thing to use for the bottom is the, like, it's got like a rubberized coating. Uh, it, it, they're going to have much less problems with their feet. And that stuff's a little bit more expensive. But my buddy Steve Larkin, who builds cages for a living, he builds quail caging for almost exactly the situation you're talking about. And he uses the coated material for the floor. And he uses like the galvanized for the sides of the roof. Now you can use the coated for everything and it will be more robust outside. But it will cost a lot more. You really can cut your cost by only doing that for the floor. So you can do this, but maybe it's not the best thing to do with them because I don't know that you really need it. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't. That doesn't mean you shouldn't. Now, when you find the material, you might want to think about what your actual height of the cage really should be based on the width of the material or whatever to make your life a little easier. So you can do it, but it may be overbuilding, and it may make construction more complicated. If it makes it easier, do it. If it makes it harder, I, I wouldn't. That's kind of my viewpoint on this one. Now, my other thing is I love crowdsourcing. So does anybody have any ideas for what to do with IBC caging? Because that would be, there's a lot of it available. There's a ton of um, them out there that, for one reason or another, the uh, 
the tanks have been either used for something else or you know damaged or whatever, and there's a ton of empty caging. What do you do with IBC caging, or what can you think of to do with IBC caging? Next up, we have a question on business and startup capital. Hi, Jack. This is Rob from Maine, longtime listener and certainly someone qualified to call you a jerk. Question, what is an appropriate salary during business startup, and can you expand on some of the funding options you've touched on in the past? Background. I'm a 20-year Navy veteran who retired from service in 2017, and I've been blessed with the opportunity to manage and grow our family farm of about 150 acres in southern Maine. My wife and I have a small choose-and-cut retail Christmas tree business that the income from which will not support our seven-member family. I desperately want to escape my daily grind and work the farm full-time. You mentioned that bootstrapping a business is not always as beneficial as using the system to provide low-interest loans grants and opportunities for deductions. Can you please expand on that idea? Thank you for your dedication to improving the lives of your patrons and uh, have a great one. Thank you very much, Rob. Well, first of all, thank you for your service. And it's great that you have a military retirement 20 years because that means that you have uh, an income from that. It's probably not enough to live on, but it's, it's, it's an income. Uh, you have no restrictions on earning other income. Uh, while drawing that income and you have one of the most expensive things taken care of, which is uh, health insurance. So that's all a great advantage. Let's be careful here on conflation of things though. So I have talked about with specifically with agricultural business that in many instances you are better off borrowing money even if you have cash to use as capital to invest because the way tax law works is that if I put a bunch of money into my farm, it might be the case that some of that has to be expensed over 30 years. If I borrow the money and service the debt, the servicing of the debt is all deductible. Okay? That is why I said that in many instances with agricultural businesses, you are better off using debt than your own money. Okay, that doesn't mean that we go into debt just for the sake of going into the debt. That means that there's a specific capital outlay that I need to put into this business, I actually have the capital, I have the money to do it with, and I'm making a financial decision that's better to use other people's money than my own money based on tax law and based on the fact now that money sunk into the business, I still have my money. Okay? It is not, 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 I am sorry, not, so that you can take a salary. No. No, 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 to hell's no. And if you do enough of that, and let's say your business fails and goes bankrupt, that's where we get into the concept known as piercing the corporate veil. In other words, you paid yourself as an employee out of money that you borrowed from creditors that you now can't pay back, but the business went bankrupt, so whoopsie, go get it from the business, and your creditors are like, a bullshit, and they go to a judge and they make the case that this man personally benefited from this, this debt, paid himself with it, He's the only owner of the corporation. This isn't freaking Microsoft here. And we want him to be personally responsible to repay the debt. And it will st certainly strengthen their case that you use their money to pay yourself. So I'm I, I, I very uncomfortable with debt in the first place. Unless we know exactly what we're doing and why we're doing it. So the reason that you would take on debt as a startup agricultural business, is these are the things this business must do to produce enough cash flow to provide for my life. 
and then that capital goes to work, and you pay yourself from revenue. If you take debt to pay yourself, I'm promising you that you're almost guaranteeing yourself failure in your business, especially coming from 20 years, and I'm not putting it down, I served in the military myself, but 20 years of knowing on the 1st and 15th I'm getting paid. I'm getting paid this much money. Every year I'm going to get a raise. If I get sick, I go to the doctor. I mean, just like, it is the most guaranteed job. Let's say it's not the most guaranteed job. It is one of the top ten most guaranteed types of employment in the world is military service. Okay? Now you're going from guaranteed employment and guaranteed income to, brother, it's all on you. So what you need to do is a very very critical examination of what the family farm business is. So, I mean, like if I was personally counseling you, well, how much revenue does this farm generate right now? And I'm assuming the Christmas tree business is separate from what you're talking about here. That there's some sort of agricultural, whether it's chickens or I don't know if it's corn or soy, is it livestock? I mean, I don't know what it is. You didn't tell me. So, what is the historic revenue of this farm? And what's its historic operational expenses? And then how are you going to grow that so that it provides for your family so it can be what you do? And Excel never lies. So, is there a market for pastured poultry? Is that part of the plan? Whatever it is. And you need to line out what does an op- what does the operation look like in the first year? What is the revenue that we can reasonably expect from those operations? And what is the capital investment necessary? And then if we're borrowing any money, we're borrowing it based on that, not how much you want to pay yourself. If the revenue isn't sufficient to pay you what you need to do this, then you need to figure out how to make the revenue sufficient to pay you what you need. And the capital should only be invested to that end. And the reason we use... The bank's capital instead of our own capital is one, it creates a capital reserve that we get to keep, i.e. our money's not sunk in the system. Number two, there are distinctive tax advantages. You need to speak to a CPA who specializes in agricultural taxes that tells you the best way to put the most money in your pocket and pay the least amount of tax against it. And you use leveraged debt as a strategy to that end. Again, for the purpose of the investment providing the infrastructure necessary for the farm to generate the revenue you want it to, and because there are tax advantages to doing that way rather than with money out of your pocket. So, how much is reasonable to pay yourself as a salary in the first year of a business? It could be anything from a million dollars a year to zero. It depends. What is the cash flow of the business? How much of that cash flow needs to be reinvested in the business? How much money do you need versus how much money you want? And I I hate to say it, you may not be able to work a farm business full-time its first year. You, You may have to do something else to earn revenue. Or you may have to say, you know, if we're going to do this, then we're going to live on the farm in a tiny house, and we're going to live off Dad's military pension for a year. And you're not going to have everything you want. And if we're going to make a go of this, I want to make a go of it this way. Maybe that's what you do. I don't know. But it sounds to me like, There is a family farming history, but maybe you're not part of it directly. Like you maybe don't know the business of farming, but maybe somebody in the family does. Are we doing this for nostalgic reasons? Because dad always had like a little farm, even though it never made any money. 
Or did dad make some money with his farm? Like that, like all of this stuff has to all be distilled. And what you need is a concrete business plan. By March, this is what things look like on this farm. This is the capital that must be invested. Here is going to be what's being planted or grown and where it's coming from. Here's the feed bill. Here's the days to harvest. Here's what the, pri the market price currently is in our market for this production. This is the likelihood of how long it takes to get so This is what it's going to take to build out a sales channel. I think one of the biggest problems people have with agricultural businesses is they, they think of farming as not a business. It is a business. It is actually one of the most cutthroat businesses out there. Not because your competition wants to cut your throat, because it's so easy to cut your own throat. There's a lot of businesses that have a lot of forgiveness in them. Farming is not one of them. It really isn't. You got to get it right if you're going to succeed. So you have two models here. One, go all in, and then make sure that the plan is right. And I would talk to your your whatever your dad, dad-in-law, whatever that's been doing this up till now, and I would want to know historical revenue, where it comes from, how money is made, is it profitable, how do you pay the bills here, right? And then I would talk to other farmers in the market. What are you doing? Why do you do it that way? How do you pay the bills, etc.? And I would not overly, like, well, they're all doing it wrong, so I'm going to do it right. And let me tell you something about farmers. They know their business. If you have farmed for 20 years and you're still farming, you know your business. Trust what they tell you. So I know that may be not what you wanted to hear, but I'm going to tell you, bro, I think it's what you need to hear. Uh, let's see. We got one more. This is an interesting one. Into the public sector. Barack wants to do more. Hi, buddy. I've got a question for you. I've read a couple of these books. Sorry, i got your podcast going in the background. I'll just turn that down. Um, Oath Keepers. Is that actually a real thing in America? Um, about the police and um, well, the military keeping their oath uh, against the Constitution, uh, to the Constitution, uh, against uh, governments that would try to overthrow them. So I think your constitution says uh, foreign and domestic. Yeah. Um, yeah, just if you could answer that one, it'll be quite a good one. Uh, you know, is the oath keepers a real thing? Thanks. Bye. Okay, so I can't tell if you're specifically asking about the organization known as Oath Keepers or the concept of oath keeping. And I bet you it's kind of a little bit of both. And because you're a distance from the ground zero here, uh, and because of some things that have happened over the years, maybe it's even more convoluted. So let's start out with the organization known as Oath Keepers. So Oath Keepers was founded by a gentleman that um, never really had a direct falling out, but we I would not call us friends any longer because we don't talk to each other anymore, named Stuart Rhodes, who at one time I considered to be a fairly good friend. And it was a very good idea. And it was exactly what you said, that you would join Oath Keepers as either a prior service military or active duty military or prior service or active duty law enforcement uh, officer and state, number one, my, my oath means exactly what it says it means, and I will not violate it. Further, if others do, I will stand, I will, in other words, even though I'm prior service, my oath is for forever. It's for the rest of my life. And I will not stand by while others violate their oaths. I will stand up for those who cannot stand up for themselves. And it's a fantastic idea. And at one time, it was an incredibly fast-growing organization. 
And then a little thing came around called Jade Helm, and it's when I parted company. I sent multiple emails to my friend, all of which were not only not... It's one thing if you don't respond the way I want you to, but when you ignore me, and I was a founding member, and I had done a lot to grow Oath Keepers, and they were basically, he got in league with Alex Jones and his tinfoil hat bullshit, and Jade Helm was going to be the U.S. military taking over Texas. And this was the stupidest thing, and it was riding hype. It was at a point where Oath Keepers was really starting to pick up momentum, and I think Stewart wanted it to be more faster, and he got in league with these people, and all of a sudden the Army's going to take over Texas. And this was stupid, and it got really crazy. And when I couldn't even get, hey, Jack, I appreciate what you've done for us, but I got this. I'm taking the, and, and here's my reasoning for doing what I'm doing. When I got ignored, and I saw everybody else that was telling Stuart, hey, dude, hold up here. We helped you build this. Now you're going nut job on us. Be ignored. I and a shitload of other people walked away. Oathkeepers still exist. There's still chapters. There's still members. They're not growing. And I don't know if that damage can ever be recovered from because it was never apologized for. It was, and you know, because Jade Helm was an operation. It was a training exercise. It came and it went. It was, well, they're floating it to see, to see whenever they do that shit. That's a Jones thing, Alex Jones. They're just floating it to see if they can get away with it. You've gone off to La La Frickin' Land. So I think the organization itself is is just never going to be what it could have been. And until leadership of it restores it to its original, simple premise, without the hype and the bullshit, I will not have anything at all to do with it. Now, I do know that several state-level organizations have basically seceded from the union, so to speak, and we're still the Oath Keepers chapter where we don't listen to the mothership anymore. I think Pennsylvania did it, honestly, but I'm really not sure. I just walked. Like, sorry, I'm out. The concept itself of keeping your oath and keeping your oath for life is a thing in in our military. I am not a law enforcement officer. I have a lot of friends that are. I have some people that I really like that are in law enforcement, and some people I really have no use for that are in law enforcement. I don't ever lump anybody into a group and say, you're all gone, except maybe politicians, right? Um But I do know some law enforcement officials who are very serious about their oath. But I think that, and this is why I liked Oath Keepers, it was made up mostly of older men. When I say older, I mean of 30s, 40s, 50s. Because then you actually know what your oath meant. It's great that our soldiers take an oath. But when you're 17, 18, 19 years old, which the majority of our privates who, who are the people that actually pull the triggers and push the buttons are, in most instances, those young men do not know what they're actually taking an oath to. They're taking an oath to the Constitution, but the Constitution means whatever their liberal teachers in high school or college, if they're young officers, told them it means. And it takes time for someone to really reflect on what the Constitution really means and to really appreciate what that oath means. And as much as an anarchist as I am now, And it would probably be very difficult to get me to join the military when I was 19 if I knew what I knew now. But I also live by my promise. And my oath applies until the day I am laid to rest in the earth. And that is to defend 
this republic. And people say, well, you're not even supposed to want a government. I don't, but there is one. And I will defend this republic against all enemies. And this is the important words. And this is where the oath-keeping comes from. All enemies, both foreign and domestic. And right now, I tend to see a lot more domestic enemies to the republic than I see foreign. There is a problem, though, with this whole philosophy. They won't shoot at us. They won't fire on American civilians. Yes, they will. They will shoot you. They will kill you in the right situation. They shot students at Kent State that were unarmed. If you say they will not turn their guns on American citizens, you are wrong. If you say they all will, you are also wrong. This is what happens when you take any group of people and you vilify or herald, you know, turn them into heroes or villains by group. All soldiers are heroes. No, some soldiers are shitbags. Do you know the word shitbag comes from? Soldiers, talking about other soldiers. You can't be offended that I said some soldiers are shitbags because that is a military term. And I was in the Army in 1990, and it was a term then, and I guarantee you, it's still a term now. So who is this soldier, and what situation are they in? Have soldiers been deployed from, let's say, a National Guard unit due to rioting in a city where people are being killed and buildings are being set on fire and people are being attacked? And I'm this young 20-year-old soldier that swore an oath to hold and defend the Constitution, but I'm also sitting here with my freaking uh, M4 carbine and you're trying to kill me. You don't think I'll kill you back? What's going on? How is this happening? How is it breaking down? Who is this cop? Is he pissed off because his friend was just killed, his brother in, in, in service? Is he a rural cop? Is he a deputy sheriff in rural Virginia? Or is he a metro cop in Richmond? To say what any anybody will do based on the group they're in is just complete ignorance to human nature. And that's a very interesting thing when we look at something like Virginia right now because we see this dynamic playing out. Like 80% of Virginia right now at the county and city level has said, yeah, if you guys pass all these gun control laws and assault weapons bans and shit, you say you are, we're not doing it here. We have sheriffs saying, you know, if you come here and try to enforce that, my deputies will arrest you. Oh, you say only law enforcement officers can have this? I'll deputize every single person that wants to be a deputy in my county. And then therefore they are law enforcement. And you can piss off. But you have some real... Well, we'll show you shit coming out of the capital and out of the major metro areas. Now, the funny thing is, I just read an article and posted, I'll put a link to it in the show notes today, where it's like the lawmakers of Virginia said on the assault weapons ban, never, never, never mind. Whoops. Because I think it got real. I think it got real really fast. Like, we're not taking this shit. But here's the whole point. <laughs> Unless there's a major change in America, it's only a matter of time before the right to keep and bear arms goes into the dustbin of history. I know you don't want to hear that. I'm supposed to tell you all the wonderful things about how we'll never let it happen. Well, we, meaning people my age, we're all going to die. Now, everybody's going to die, but we're going to die first. 
I am more likely to die before someone who's 22 right now than they are to die before me. And I'm going to be old before they're old. And our youth are largely being taught, hey, your dad, your mom, they're not very smart people. Don't listen to them. On all types of things, but especially the Second Amendment. And it is only by educating, educating those people, those young people, that you can hold back this thing. Because it's not about voting. You're seeing, Virginia right now is showing you it's not about just voting. Because, hey, Democrats got the state legislature, the House and Senate both, and they got the governor's mansion. They can pretty much run anything they want through right now. But when they say, well, this is what we're going to do, and, and the whole damn state goes, I don't freaking think so. They're not backing down because they're afraid they're going to you know, lose the, re the new election, the next election. They're backing down because they're like, holy shit, these MFers are serious about this shit. And they're thinking, is, is Deputy, Fr Deputy Frank from rural Virginia going to side with his brother-in-law or the fellers here at the state house? Which one do you think? Who, who, I mean, honest to God. See, and that changes the whole oath-keeping. What is your loyalty to? Well, your loyalty is to the Constitution of the United States and at the state level, your state constitution. Well, when we can have people who are both scholars who have studied the Constitution for 30 years, that both have Ph.D. after their name, that are both extremely informed, that maybe both of them could recite the Constitution for you, completely disagree about what the Constitution means, don't you think Deputy A and Deputy B might disagree about what the Constitution means? See, the loyalty of any man or any woman is less to a document and more to the people they love than anything else. That is what oath-keeping is really about. The Constitution that you serve under, again, either the federal Constitution when you serve in the United States military, or the state Constitution as a law enforcement officer or a member of the National Guard or something like that, that is the guidelines, that is the restrictions, that is the prime directive in the ethics is the way that it's looked at. But my first loyalty is to my son. I am, and I, I don't apologize for it, I am more loyal to my son than I am to anybody that listens to this show other than my son. Because he's my son. And I'm more loyal to this audience than I am to some random ass clown in Washington, D.C. that I don't even know. Why wouldn't I be? You guys support me. You guys share my information. You guys pay my bills. We have common ideals. So every human is that way. It's one of the fundamental flaws with the concept of democracy and government. It really is. Because in the end, you're not loyal to the Constitution. You're not loyal to your state. You're not loyal to your country. You can be loyal to all those things, but that is not your highest loyalty. Your highest loyalty, depending on your faith, is going to be probably to God. For most people. And then the next in that tier is going to be family. 
And you can say, well, then country. God, family, country. Well, until country conflicts with family. My family and my friends are my first loyalty. And you can say whatever you want about duly elected or duly appointed or processed. You're trying to kill my brother because you don't like the way he's living and he's not bothering anybody. My oath commands me to defend his rights. The very fact that I am still to a level loyal to our Constitution, the only reason I'm loyal to that Constitution is because of what it protects. It's not some sacred document that is like religious and holy that should be worshipped and, and bowed in front of. The purpose of that document was to limit government and its ability to have tyranny against its own people. If you alter it to the point, or alter what it means to the point, where it no longer protects the individual, then you can take my supposed oath to it and you can shove it up your ass. And I know that doesn't sound like what people want to hear, but it's the truth. If you change the document to no longer protect the individual so that its primary purpose is to protect the will of the collective, then it no longer is what I took an oath to. So I know that's a kind of a roundabout answer, but there you go. That's some history, and that's my philosophy on it, and it's why I think that the best thing for the freedom of a people is for the people to be armed. Because you can do whatever you want if the people aren't armed. I'll tell you right now, the reason the VA legislature, the Virginia legislature, is starting to blink is because those people really do have those guns they want to take away, and they're not so hip on giving them up. It ain't because they're going to vote one way or another. They don't give a shit about that. The way a politician works is they go talk to voters and find out what they want to hear, and then they say what the voter says they want to hear. They'll tell you anything the hell you want. They don't make their money off their political salaries. They make it off of their connections because of their political positions. They ain't loyal to you. I ain't loyal to them. I'm loyal to primarily the ideal of individual personal liberty. And I'm as loyal to the Constitution as the Constitution protects that guiding key one thing. And I will put the needs of my family and my friends above strangers. So, does that make me an oath keeper? I say it does. Many would say it does not. That my loyalty should be to a piece of paper above all of those other things. And when you look at our military and our police, you have people that primarily fall on one side or the other of that. And the problem with falling on the other side of it is it means basically whatever the people who have educated you told you that it means. If it means the protection of individuals, if it means the protection of individual rights against the tyranny of the majority, then you can try to twist it any way you want. When you're grounded in that principle over your preference, it's almost always clear. How many of people that consider themselves oath keepers are clear on that, though? I don't know. And we will never know, unless, God forbid, 
push comes to shove, and we find out the hard way. And I think that both sides will be drastically shocked at how many fall on each side. It might be damn close to down the middle. Most civil wars are. Hopefully we don't ever get there. Anyway, with that, we've wrapped up another episode. If you uh, want to support this show, remember you can do that uh, by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Today's item of the day is the Winchester 51-piece gunsmith screwdriver set. Now look, guys, this is not like the super high-grade, amazing gunsmithing screwdriver set. This is $16 bucks for a 51-piece set, which is 50 bits and the handle. But you know what? It's $16. And it's great to go in your range bag, but it's great to go in the glove box of your car. Because when you're sitting there and you're looking at that one Torx bit, this thing doesn't have them all, but it probably is the one you're looking at, and you're better off having it than not having it. Um, for $16, bucks, it's really, really a great set. It's also a great gift, and it's a good stocking stuffer. You know, I mentioned that I always keep like an EAB in my glove box. A couple things go in my glove box, you know, they, and each vehicle and, and what have you. And, and the set, this, this screwdriver set is too. Um, it's really, again, it's not super high end, but for sixteen bucks, it's it's remarkably well made. I've sold hundreds and hundreds of these over the years, and I've never had a complaint about them. Uh, check it out. It's made by Winchester, and yes, like Winchester Arms, sixteen bucks on Amazon. And when you do your online shopping at tspaz.com. You help the survival podcast and the work that we do no matter what you buy. And remember, there's a lot of shopping going on right now, so it's really easy to go to that website, tspaz.com first. So anyway, our song of the day today, um, I'm going off script from John Adams' list again. Um, just not feeling his, his, his second half of the week from hump day forward this week. And I, I thought about that piece on oath-keeping there at the end of the show and how there is some darkness in it. And darkness is not what I'm about. Um, I saw a meme recently that said, I'm peaceful because I'm capable of great violence. If you're not capable of great violence, you're not peaceful, you're harmless. And there's a difference. And that's true. The, the part of me you heard speaking there is the part of me that knows in my soul If it comes down to the defense of my family and my friends and the things that I love, I am capable of immense violence. But I don't want to ever have to reach the point where it's necessary for that darkness within me to come out. I am about the most positive view that I can have of the world. And my hope for the world is in the end, the world is us. And I know that humans are capable of darkness, and I know that we're capable of light. I know that every wonderful thing that we have in the world today is because somebody made it happen. Somebody built it. And I know that is for all of the negative that you can point to, there is no better time in history to live in than right now. My hope is that continues to become more the case. That I can tell you in 20 years from now, assuming I'm still around and still doing this, That that's still the case. That it's better now than it was 20 years ago back in you know, 2019 as we were at the edge of a new decade. The 2040 is even better. And the only way it's got better is because of people. That's what this song's really all about. It's called World. It's a pretty old song now. 
by five for fighting. What kind of world do you want? That's the theme of this song. Build anything. The idea that you could almost get a kit of building the world in the mail from Acme. What kind of world do you want? Get with building it. One of the reasons I stay out of a lot of things that like we talked about here at the end today, these clowns that think they know better than you how to live your life, is because to a large degree, most of the things people get upset about and worry about in that world, you don't have any direct impact over. Threatening to vote them out of office doesn't work. Telling them if you try that, we're going to shoot your ass tends to work. So in between those two extremes, focus on what you actually can build. Right now, I'm redesigning my aviary. I'm rebuilding my greenhouse. I'm putting in new gardens. I'm teaching my grandchildren how to grow their own food. I will be a peaceful man building the world that I want until such time as someone tries to take it away from me. And I prefer to stay in that state for the rest of my life if possible. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. A globe made out of gold No instructions or commandments Laws of gravity or indecisions to uphold Printed on the box I see Acme's build a world to be Take a chance Grab a piece, help me to believe it. What kind of world do you want? Think anything. Let's start at the start. Build a masterpiece. Be careful what you wish for. History starts now.